0: This is recording. RTI
1: International
2: Center
0: Forensic Science presents
1: Just Science.
0: Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. Over the last few years, the National Institute of Justice has placed an increasingly large emphasis on the influence of work-related stress on mental health. In this special release episode, Just Science interviews Amy Jean and Andrew Levin, two experts in the field of workforce resiliency, about the impact of vicarious trauma on forensic scientists, analysts, and first responders. The impact that stress has on a person's mind and body can be dramatic but the effects are amplified when the stressors involve violent, graphic, or traumatic material. Amy Jongwana and Andrew Levin are working to provide support to those affected by vicarious trauma. Listen along as they discuss stress, mindfulness, and the future of resiliency in this episode of Just Science. This episode is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan.
3: And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. The FTCOE has been uh, getting more involved in in the last year, ever since last year's American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors meeting, and that is the area of workforce stress and resiliency. When we first announced that we were going to be trying to uh, help the community learn more about getting more resources in this area, it was one of the most extraordinary responses we've ever seen from the community. This is something that a lot of folks have experienced, a lot of people have seen in their colleagues, and many, many people are anxious to find uh, ways that they can improve their workforce resiliency and help their colleagues do the same. The two folks that we have here today are two of the leaders in that field. So we're very, very fortunate to have them with us today. Amy Jean-Guinot has spent her career working actually in the private forensic industry, supporting efforts to prevent and eliminate DNA backlogs, define operational logistics, and provide quality and technical system support. And she was also a former laboratory director and technical leader. So she actually comes from an operational background in crime laboratories. She shifted in 2016 to launch MindGen which merges her interest in developing best practices for forensic science with the effects of mindfulness and human performance. She's completed training in mindfulness-based stress reduction and is a certified teacher of ancient wisdom, yoga, mindfulness, and meditation and is applying these techniques to bringing mindfulness-based techniques to forensic science to improve decision-making and the quality of work and life. Dr. Andrew Levin is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and received residency training and completed a National Institute of Mental Health Fellowship at the New York State Psychiatric Institute and the Department of Psychiatry, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and has a long, long uh, set of experience in uh, mental health practice and improving mental health practice. Uh, not only in New York, uh, but around the country. He's directed the largest outpatient mental health service in Westchester County at St. Vincent's Hospital in Harrison, New York. We're very fortunate to have a fellow like Dr. Levin involved with this, who's directed and authored unique studies on vicarious trauma in legal professionals and who has regularly lectured judges, attorneys, and mental health professionals on identification and coping with vicarious trauma and stress. So welcome to the podcast. So let's actually uh, start with you, Andrew, because you're coming from where this has been kind of a lifelong uh, issue for you dealing with issues involving how how stress and mood disorders and other things like that can impact on individuals. Tell me kind of how does the psychiatric profession in general define these issues? How does it kind of scope them? Because obviously we all have stress every day and we all react to that stress every day. So what is the best way to kind of think about this definitionally? Uh, I
1: think the place to start is with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is uh, has been identified really over the last century. It's had different names and different labels, but basically it's a response to a traumatic situation. And we usually think of that as something like you know, combat in the military or an assault or a, an accident. And gradually that evolved really in the 90s where mental health professionals recognized that working with trauma survivors and having contact with trauma material through their work with with patients affected them very deeply. And that got labeled um, secondary traumatic stress. It got labeled vicarious trauma. And that was really a a leap to go from being a victim to being a kind of secondary victim. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gradually, this concept that exposure to traumatic material causes um, reactions and responses in people then, then spread out. And it spread out to uh, first responders, EMS, firefighters, police officers. And my work, actually, I initially extended it to attorneys um, who were working in the capital area. They were exposed, of course, to um, challenging crime scenes, to difficult uh, stories, uh, and, and they had some reactions to this. And so I, I did a, a large study in Wisconsin of uh, public defenders in terms of their dealing with stress. And it turned out that it wasn't just the stress of being exposed to traumatic and challenging material, it was also the stress of having huge caseloads, of being in a very high-pressured situation, uh, working in a situation that was often rather hostile to the public defender. And so we, we found a series of things. We found that they suffered from some vicarious trauma and they suffered from mood disorders, from anxiety, and from something called burnout, which everybody kind of knows intuitively about. It's it's a concept that's been around since the late 70s, and that's really more related to just workload, overload, fatigue, cynicism,
3: feeling discouraged. From your perspective, you've seen a very wide variety of people who have been involved in post-traumatic stress, vicarious trauma, burnout, whatever, How does it vary across individuals? Is that well understood now? And are are the ways that we would help individuals and tailor responses to them well understood at this point? Or where are we with respect to our research understanding? Well, I think the general concept, and this also applies to the original research in PTSD, is
1: what are the factors that increase the likelihood that an individual would have one of these responses? And just to define vicarious trauma uh, means people are uh, thinking about... The material, when they don't want to, they might be dreaming about it, It means that they may be jumpy and anxious. It means that they may be withdrawing from people around them because they're preoccupied and they don't feel they can relate to them. That's kind of the general picture. In terms of the factors that may lead somebody to be at risk, to have a greater likelihood of developing it, well, first and foremost, of course, would be the nature of the material they're exposed to. Uh, we know that certainly very graphic materials are challenging we know that materials that involve children uh, so individuals who may work in the law enforcement field where there have been crimes against children or in the such child pornography uh, you know sure, yeah. those kinds of materials so those are those are two two elements of the material itself mm-hmm. graphic children also if it it involves a person who you might identify with, a person whose you were age or your gender or someone like you. Mm-hmm. That also increases the likelihood that it's really going to affect you. So that's one factor. Then the two other factors really are, well, who are you as a person? What's your background? People who have had traumatic personal experiences may be more likely to develop vicarious trauma when exposed to material on the job or in these ways. So that's one possibility. People who've had other coping issues may may be a little bit more vulnerable. And then the third factor is this whole issue that we, we're trying to work on, which is resiliency, which is in what way can you train and prepare people to manage this material? Interestingly, the military has been working on this in the last few years in terms of training officers and personnel to be more prepared for what they're going to encounter. And then the other, other issue is how do you help them after they encounter this material? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do to support them? So those are the ways
3: that we think about well, who's going to be affected and why they might be affected. Interesting. So, Amy, let's turn to you. Tell me about kind of your background in forensic science and how you came to be interested in this particular topic.
2: Yeah, sure. I've been in the criminal justice field for 15 years now. And lastly, I was in charge of operations of a laboratory. And I would notice in employees when they felt stressed or under pressure that they started to become disengaged, the quality of their work would go down, and I felt sort of personally responsible for the morale of the laboratory. I wanted the employees to thrive and what were the ways in which that they could do that. In the meantime, I also had my own personal experiences with stress, and I started to become very aware of when I had a stress or pressure reaction or trigger, what did that mean for me? What did that mean for me, for my physiology? What did it mean for my mental health? What did it mean for me emotionally? And I would notice that I was getting sick more often. I was feeling very fatigued. I would have brain fog where I knew that I could come up with a solution to a challenge, but it just seemed more difficult in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I was more reactionary. So my responses tended to be autopilot or I'm a fighter. So I like to fight for what's right and I will fight for all the people who won't speak up for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that would tend to be my reaction. That's not always the appropriate response to handle things. So I wasn't my best self and I didn't feel I was showing up as my best self at work and wanted to look into techniques that could help me and help employees.
3: So uh, you went and uh, had started, I assume while you were still in the lab, to develop some strategies along this line. Did you feel like there were many uh, resources oriented around forensic scientists when you were working in the laboratory to help with this, or did you have to look more broadly to try to find some, some strategies?
2: I definitely had to look more broadly. There wasn't really anything beyond, you know, typical ways to be healthy at work, like going on a walking challenge, or let's not bring donuts into the lab, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like little things like that. Sure. It actually, if we, if we want to speak a little bit more more personal, if I'm a little bit more vulnerable about some deeper things I was experiencing um, relating along the lines of vicarious trauma, I had never even heard of the words vicarious trauma and noticed I had changes in my behavior and my world views based on the casework that I was doing. And at the time, I was reviewing a lot of sexual assault kits. Um There's a huge unsubmitted kit issue in the United States, and the laboratory I was working at is really um, in the forefront and helping to eliminate a lot of the backlogs that exist. So I was reviewing a ton of medical reports that went through what victims experienced when they were sexually assaulted. And I started noticing that if I was in a large city, if it was safe for me to not stop at a red light or not stop at a stop sign. I would go through it because I was having mental imagery of women who were pulled from their cars and raped on the side of the road. You know, you think, oh, this is just a symptom of my job, but I didn't really realize that it was a trauma related to the job. And I was actually in a lecture on the neurobiology of trauma from the perspective of how do we handle victims better? How do we interview them better? How do we understand what they're going through? And in ways that they are believed, because that was a law enforcement issue is that as memory is laid down differently and recalled differently, they would think victims were lying or falsifying or not telling the whole story. But we know it's the way the brain lays down memory in response to trauma. And I remember thinking, could I have trauma for my job? You know, right. like because all the mm-hmm. things they were talking about, I had experienced, And I felt sort of embarrassed to go up to the person presenting. So, of course, I Google, you know, can I have trauma? I have trauma for my job. And all these things were coming up, and there, there really wasn't anything that dealt with forensic sciences specifically, but there was enough related industries that I then went and spoke to the person. They're like, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of research on it. I said, well, this is a huge gap then in forensics. Like, I can't be the only one that is experiencing this. And it just became a passion of me to want to bring attention to this and bring resources.
3: Well, we're very fortunate. You know, um, many of the folks who are familiar with FTCOE products know uh, Rebecca Gamble, who really. Uh, was a pioneer in that issue for sexual assault victims and has done an enormous service to both the forensic science community and the criminal justice community more broadly, as well as, of course, to victims of sexual assault. Now there's there's a, a number of folks who are contributing to that research and to improving practice in that area. It's amazing to see that, okay, now we know that there's research out there that's relevant to our work. And being able to bring that evidence based approach into what we're doing is so, so very important and can help so many people. So uh, that's really interesting that that's where that came from, from your perspective. It was actually
2: (laughs) Rebecca Campbell. Was it? Okay. (laughs) I
3: I figured it must be. Yeah. Yeah, So uh, So
2: I've had an opportunity to talk with her about this topic a lot, and and we've presented together before on this topic. So she's been really helpful.
3: Andrew, uh, how did you and Amy connect? And tell me where things are standing right now in terms of what you all are doing together to try to help uh, with this issue.
1: Uh, Okay. This is a little convoluted. I'm a member of an organization called the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, which I'm a forensic psychiatrist, so I'm involved as an expert in in criminal and civil matters. And over the years, I have been presenting this issue of vicarious trauma at those meetings, and people uh, are familiar with this. Uh, I guess two years ago, the president of that organization and the president of ASCLAD, were at the AAFS meeting, I believe that's where they were, and they were discussing this issue When they said, listen, our our people are are identifying this as something that's happening to them, it's something new, we don't understand it, do you know anybody who does this? And that's how we got connected. So last year at ASCLAD, I gave a, a presentation and then we had a panel of five uh, directors who each talked about different dimensions of stress that they were experiencing on the job. So whether it was high caseloads or... You know, demands for error-free work, uh, testimony, and also the challenge of the material itself. And then this year, we just dis- there was discussion of let's do a workshop, and we connected through I guess the ASCLAD trauma and stress work group, yeah. and that's that's how we put together this panel that we did yesterday.
3: Uh, you all did a basically a, a small workshop yesterday yeah. at ASCLAD. Yes. yes. So what were the what were the objectives of the of the workshop here?
2: was really to delve deep in what are the nuanced differences between stress, vicarious trauma, and burnout for the people that are there to individually do some self-reflection into how do those things show up in their own lives if they do, and to put some reflection back to their laboratory. How does it show up for the people that work in the lab, and what have they noticed? We had a lot of open discussion around mm-hmm. those topics and then we transitioned into some resilience techniques that can be used to mitigate and manage.
3: Let's start with that, because I'd like to get definitions right. Uh, you just mentioned three things, stress, burnout, and vicarious, or trauma, or, or vicarious trauma is really what you're talking about, I suppose, because that's a particular kind of trauma, right? And Andrew, you talked to it uh, you know, to some extent earlier, but just to just get our, our definitions right, so tell me, what, what is stress? Stress is anything that, that mobilizes a response.
1: Um, we often talk of a sort of fight or flight uh, response mm-hmm. um, that uh, people know about. Adrenaline, cortisol is another response hormone. Mm-hmm. So situations that are challenging that may involve uh, a threat to to your person or self, uh, and in vicarious trauma, of course, you're you're hearing about a threat to someone else. But mm-hmm. because of the way we're wired, it mobilizes a lot of the same uh, issues for us as individuals. Because of empathy, because of our ability to feel what other people feel, mm-hmm. um, when we encounter traumatic material from other people, it, it mobilizes the same kinds of responses in ourselves as we would have if we were exposed to that trauma. directly. Okay.
3: You know, obviously we have stress every day, but we don't have trauma every day. I mean, is there is is there any thresholding? Is there a clear line between those two? Well, of course,
1: as a forensic psychiatrist, I can tell you this is the battleground in almost every legal case that involves stress okay. On the job. Okay, I'm glad I hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so there you a know, bit, that's is <laughs> yelling at your boss a trauma. Uh, no, but but it can certainly disturb you for a while. So we mm. might call that stress. But the question comes, you know, when does it become trauma? The technical definition is, you know, a threat to your life or limb or serious life or limb threat to someone else. Can it be threat? Yes. There's, there's another dimension, which is the perception of the threat is a key issue in terms of how you respond to it. And then I actually relate to this issue we talked about, training, mm-hmm. which is, can you train people to uh, recognize uh, stress and deal
3: with it in a way that's not as intense? Sure. And then tell me uh, about burnout. How do, we, how do we talk about you know, what burnout is and how you know, what the importance of it is in this context?
2: It is an inability to feel that you can do your job or make a difference anymore. Mm-hmm. And you sort of lose that hope that anything you're doing is really going to change anything. And it's, it's heading in a direction where can you bounce back from that? Or are you going to head out the door and, and need to resign or retire because you just can't do it anymore?
1: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, an important sort of distinct way to distinguish burnout and secondary trauma or vicarious trauma is that burnout is an accumulation of stress, heavy workloads, great demands, whereas trauma is more this issue of being confronted by a situation where there's danger Mm -hmm. to you. Um, it turns out, though, when you study this, when you, ask, when you ask people to both report on their burnout and report on their vicarious trauma, that they're very, very highly correlated and they overlap quite a bit. So they're not completely separate. But the concepts were developed really from very different perspectives. One was this kind of work
3: overload. And the other concept was contact with traumatic material. Uh, now, you all talk a lot about awareness. And so let's let's talk about what do we mean by that? And how can we become more aware of our own stress and of our colleagues' stress? I
2: think the awareness piece is important just to educate the community that these issues exist and are out there and that we can come together to help provide resources and find solutions to them. A few years ago, when I decided to launch a mindful forensics initiative is what I called it. The first part is that I had to provide awareness to these issues because people just aren't talking about it. You know, like I said, I had never, I'd never been to a workshop. I had never heard anything about vicarious trauma. Oh yeah, it's stress. Just deal with it. This is the job. You know, you have to be a special person to do this job. You have to compartmentalize the stuff you see. You know, those are the things that are thrown around out there, kind of making it not okay to really talk up or maybe even reach out for peer support when maybe things get a little bit more difficult.
3: Are there particular signs? Are there particular ways that, how do we kind of shift from dealing with those kinds of stresses? And and then it gets to the point where it's a, a danger to my, I'm not being resilient enough. How do I understand when it's becoming too much for me?
2: Well, I think at some point, there is some sort of window of tolerance that we all have for any stress. So stress can happen anytime our needs are not met. That could be you ordered a mocha latte and they didn't add chocolate to it and that's
3: like I hate it when that happens ruins your morning <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know and then you're stuck in traffic on the way to work and then sure. you get to work and you have a plan for the day but you have all these emails and fires that you have to put out instead right and, and the day just sort of gets away from you and you're writing things in your to-do list that you did be, that weren't on there originally just to feel accomplished you know it's, yes. you know, it's right. things along those lines I have to remember that Even that like, is a good one really, actually yeah. yeah so I think we have to remember that there are these little things that can set up us off all day long that are stressed, but that usually they're in some sort of normal window of tolerance where we might have our fight or flight response, and then we come back down into rest and digest, and you sort of have this cyclical pattern that happens. But we can have triggering events where we get over aroused or under aroused. And so, in over aroused, we have more anxiety, or we have pain, or we're restless. When we're under aroused, we might be flat, or disengaged, or depressed. Um, and we can stay there. We can stay there for a long time. I'm pretty sure I was in an over-aroused state for like a few years. Like,
3: <laughs> sure, yeah.
2: I, I just was riding on adrenaline and anxiety to get me through the day. So it's, it's knowing then how can I get myself back to more of a natural state where I'm feeling more contentment and in, in present moment and a balanced being than in an anxiety or an under-aroused state.
3: And it is a a general health issue as well. I mean, you know, a chronic exposure to cortisol and, and other kinds of stress hormones can be very bad for you just generally in your health, right?
2: Yeah, so you can think about how does stress affect you physically and just as a natural fight or flight reaction, you might notice you start to perspire or you start to get flushed Maybe you feel tension in certain areas of your body or you get butterflies in your stomach. We can all recognize when those things happen to us. When you work on your awareness, you can use your physiology triggers to tell your brain everything's actually okay. Like We don't have to go there. And that's where some of the resilience techniques like learning how to work with your breath and breathing can help actually tell your brain like we're actually okay. But it's good to have fight or flight when you might get in a car accident or you actually have to, to run from something that is threatening. But too often, our, our primitive brain that triggers this is sort of running, running the show. And if we let it have control, then part of our brain that handles decision making and memory and recall isn't working as good. And so if you do notice that you are experiencing sort of this brain fog or you can't remember things that you used to remember, you may have your amygdala running the show right
3: now. That's interesting. So, Andrew, when you were working with legal professionals, such as you mentioned in capital cases and things of that nature, how did you see, how did you observe the uh, lack of resiliency when that was happening? What are the signs that you generally, are, or the behaviors or manifestations that kind of were red flags from your perspective when somebody was not able to handle the stresses involved?
1: Oh, Just to go back to something that, that you said, Amy, that I thought was was really really right on was this issue of arousal versus numbing and Mm -hmm. then when when we initially started to study PTSD these were the two poles that we thought about was that people were facing arousal at the time of the exposure and also arousal later when they were reminded uh, like you said stopping at a stoplight reminded you of those stories and then they were also experiencing numbing um, loss of pleasure, loss of interest, withdrawal from people around them, mm-hmm. uh, the blahs. And that those two poles are, especially when after you've had a lot of arousal and then you start to go through these numbing phases as well. And I think that that's, that's an accurate way of looking at how I saw the capital attorneys was that they were very aroused. These were very high-pressured cases, as you would imagine, Uh, They were perfectionists. They wanted to do their best, especially under very difficult circumstances. And this caused them to maybe talk a little faster, show some signs of body tension, Mm -hmm. maybe be a little impatient and irritable in terms of getting things done. And the legal system, as we all know, can be quite frustrating. Sure. Um, And so I saw that. And then they reported being preoccupied with what they were doing. And indirectly, what we also learn is that people go home and they may go into this numbed state where they're withdrawn from their loved ones, where they're not as interested. And another dimension of working with very difficult material is you can't share it with everybody. Hi, you know, I was working on sexual assault kits today, and here's a couple of the stories I heard. Well, you know, that's not something you can do with lay people who aren't part of your work. And that could include your family, of course. So that's another dimension, is when you get into working in these kinds of areas, there's a kind of isolation and where you were really isolated to the, to the other professionals. This has really been well characterized, I think, in law enforcement. There are some interesting uh, work that's shown in reports along these lines. So that's another dimension of, of how uh, these attorneys were affected.
3: So one of the things that uh, we've certainly covered in this area uh, previously is the idea of being able to cope with this isn't necessarily putting it in a box and, and ignoring it, right? Because at some point you're going to have to deal with that, oh, right? Although
1: that, we, we often think of that as a bad mechanism. It can be a useful mechanism if used judiciously and properly. Okay. That ignoring stress is a coping strategy, but I think, I think that you were pointing out that if you only do that, Right. That, that's a problem. Right. Yeah, that right. can be a problem. Yeah, I mean, it
2: can manifest. We talk about the physical issues you can have. Well, that will eventually lead to disease. You know, it's mm-hmm. you might start out with some things, but then when we're in this constant fight or flight response, there's certain physiology things that are occurring to prepare us to fight or flee. You know, our blood goes out to our limbs, and certain things that aren't necessary to keep us alive are not working at its top functions, So, you know, fertility issues can result from that. You can have um, GI issues as a result from that. Your immunity might decrease because those things are not essential for keeping you alive. And that's what your brain is trying to do.
3: But of course there has to be a balance, right? I mean, I would be concerned about somebody who dealt with sexual assault issues who did not have some kind of emotional response. And I think sometimes in forensic science, you know, uh, uh, most of the people or many of the people who get involved in forensic science, especially when they are, you know, getting involved in chemistry or DNA biology, they tend to be people who are like, I'm going to look, you know, and they have to, care mostly about the technical issue here, right? And so they are kind of trained to compartmentalize. And maybe some of this emotional response sneaks up on them because, you know, hey, I mean, it's a perfectly natural thing to have an emotional response. And that by itself is not a negative
2: no, not necessarily. It's just that if it continues and you're not able to really bring yourself back, you know, if you notice that it's having other negative impacts on your life or your behaviors has changed or your worldview has changed because of that, you wanna be able to have some things you can do to get you back to, to feeling okay most of the days.
3: Yeah, so it's more about trying to build resiliency.
2: Yeah, and it's something we all have. We all have we're all resilient on some level, but when we are dealing with difficult things, How can we maybe bounce back from that difficulty a little bit quicker Um, or have some tools where we go home at night, we're not taking it home with us. So we might be able to de-stress before we enter our home again and we can be more present with our families. It's things like that um, so that we're really enjoying life. Really, That's, that's what I want people to have a good quality of work and life.
3: It's hard to objectively determine am I resilient or not, right? I mean, and life throws us curveballs all the time. So how would you define resiliency and how you define what is adequate resiliency?
2: Change is the only constant, right? We're always going to have changes, changes to our plan, changes to things we have to deal with. Um, We think everything is going right in our relationship and then something changes and it's not anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, we're always having to deal with difficult things that maybe aren't going according to plan and you want to be able to pivot and respond to that in a positive manner instead of you know, going down a hole of negativity where it's harder to come back from
1: those. I'm reminded of when I started in the trauma field long ago, I was working as the director of an inpatient unit. uh, And we had women who had been victims of very serious child abuse and also adult assault. And in the beginning, we were overwhelmed. And, And this was really before we had thought about vicarious trauma. We were overwhelmed by the material that we heard from them. And We're dreaming about it, and we're very jumpy. Then we went through a phase of not believing them, like couldn't have happened, This is the world's not like this. Then as we accepted this, then then we went through a phase of being kind of discouraged, we couldn't do much, we felt very powerless. And then gradually we reached a point where we saw, well, we can make an impact, and how do we balance that against what we're seeing and what we're working with? And that seemed to be an, an arc that I think people go through in various different ways. Um, without understanding necessarily what resiliency is. I guess another perspective of this is people say, well, you've been exposed to traumatic material and you don't realize how it's stressing and you should be stressed, you just don't realize it. But it turns out that the research suggests that in general people are quite resilient so that only a a minority of people end up um, really suffering in in a significant way. Most people are able to go through this kind of natural arc. And it really, it sounds like, your goal, Amy, in, in your work is to help people who are having responses to really go through a much more natural process.
2: I think when it comes to vicarious trauma, you know, yes, it's true, but stress, it's hard to talk to anybody and not. I think stress doesn't come up as a workplace issue in just about any workplace. It's really, in think, in the United States, it's a huge issue. I mean, Gallup that does polls on employee engagement and workplace, they found that 70% of employees are, are disengaged because of stress, and that increases productivity. Harvard did a study where they found that businesses were spending $30 billion a year because of lost work days due to stress. So I think there is a little bit more we can do with maybe the stress level that probably most people do experience on some level, where maybe they're not experiencing yet or at all vicarious trauma.
3: So what coping strategies do you recommend? There are very specific ones that uh, you talked about yesterday. So can you just outline some of the specific ideas? Uh, the one that I, I uh, find most interesting is the restful awareness. But tell, tell me about some of the strategies that you encourage people to, to look at.
2: So a lot of the strategies that end up I end up talking about are really to get people back into the present moment because when we tend to ruminate about the past or go and tell our stories about what's going to happen in the future, that's where we are usually in some of those stressful states where that's not where we really need to be. So if we can get back to the present moment, we can be here, we can be more content and be aware of what's actually going on around us. The easiest way to do that is by working with your breath because we always have that with us. Mm-hmm. And just by taking a deep breath you can start to become calmer and more relaxed. When I teach the fundamentals is always about breath work, And also how you work with your diaphragm to breathe appropriately because, again, our breath is there to keep us alive. And so sometimes we're just chest breathing and it actually can put a strain on our neck and our shoulders. And it's not engaging the vagus nerve, which helps send signals back to the brain that everything's fine.
3: I've read about the vagus nerve a lot recently Mm -hmm. and trying to become more aware of ways I can just help to calm myself down, especially at the end of the day find that it's sometimes just feel like your heart is like pounding out of your chest sometimes. If you know how to kind of control that, you can actually help to uh, get yourself to rest much, much better. Yeah. Um, And uh, so the another one you talk about is pattern interruption. So tell me what that means.
2: So a pattern interrupt is something that our awareness draws us to, to say, we're not focusing on what we want to be focusing on. Um, That awareness piece can be your interruption and you can go back to your focal point. So if you notice that you are telling yourself stories, which our brain tends to do all the time, and we have an average of 60,000 thoughts a day, but most of it's just replaying the same things over and over again, or we're not very nice to ourselves, so we're saying negative things in our head, and we're thinking about all the past and ways we maybe change or say things better or do things different. So a pattern interrupt would be recognizing you're going down that rabbit hole and to tell yourself, I don't need to do this right now, and I'm going to go back to my focus point. If you are practicing on something, your focus point might be going back to breathing. Your focus point might be, I need to go back to sleep. I need to go back to focusing on the job task that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's that awareness piece that can create that pattern interrupt for you so that you can go back to focus attention.
3: All those uh, seem like very, very useful pieces of advice. Do we kind of know whether we can actually break the patterns of how we think and how we deal with trauma? Uh, is it possible to work with somebody with PTSD, which is an extreme version of this, and really get them to the point where they have this kind of resiliency and are able to deal with it? Is the, what, what do we know about what, uh, the effectiveness of, of these techniques at this point?
1: I guess there are several dimensions. So the techniques that you're talking about really address the individual. How does the individual cope and deal with arousal and numbing? And we know, certainly know that mindfulness and other related techniques are effective. The actual treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the treatments that's most effective is this, is this re-exposure notion, meaning helping people digest the material. And to some extent, that I see that more as, as having a trauma-informed workplace. So one dimension, as you say, is, is helping the individual cope, but another is setting up a workplace where these things are understood and recognized. And so in one dimension, that's really an education issue. Do workplaces, uh, in particular uh, crime lab workplaces, recognize that this is a phenomenon, that this is what's going on? Then do they set up a culture where it's, it's okay to talk about them? Does it become part of your regular meeting with your supervisor? How are you doing? You had a rough case last week. How is it affecting you? Uh, are there mechanisms for peer support? Uh, law enforcement has done a lot of work on peer support, particularly after um, traumatic incidents like, um, you know, shootings and death of an officer and those kinds of things. So, are there peer supports? Are there times in the day, or does the institution set up places, ways for people to do mindfulness, exercise, yoga, various ways to unwind and decompress? Mm-hmm. Um, And then in the greater sense, and what kind of supports exist even outside, whether that's EAP, whether that's outside uh, treatment, although, again, we're talking about a minority there. And I think just these cultural elements really help people at the workplace.
3: Amy, I would like to talk a little bit more broadly here because we're at a, I think we're at a point in the forensic science community that's really very positive in the sense that we've recognized this issue. Yes, and we've st- we started to talk about it. We started to tell people here's some strategies. But I think there's a lot more work to be done. Kind of. So where do you think we are as a community, and where do you th- where do we need to head? And and how are you kind of trying to help to move the community in the right direction and how it deals with these issues?
2: I think the community is at the very, very beginning stages of even knowing what to do for this. Like I said, it was just a few years ago that I started talking about it and it wasn't a thing. And I had a series of people that said, oh, yes, this is so needed. And a series of people that said, you are crazy. That's going to go nowhere. Because that's the way the field always is. That's the way it's always been, you know? Sure. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it's a stressful job. Okay. Get over and it. And to just
2: right? <laughs> say, in the last couple of years, I mean, the fact that Asklad started a working group on this issue, the fact that FTCOE has been drawing attention to it, that there is a vicaria traumas tool- toolkit out there, and not that it's geared towards forensics, but that it's it's on its its path to start being more inclusive. And the fact that some of the uh, NIJ grants that have always been geared towards wellness and law enforcement were open up to forensic scientists this year, like, those are all wins in my box. Like, I think that that's awesome what's happened in the last couple years. And people are starting to to look and say, we want wellness programs. Um, How do we do this a lot better? But it's at a reactive stage right now because we're realizing that there is this issue and now how do we help people? But I think we need to start moving also in a more proactive stage. And like you said, total holistic look at this systematically. I mean, larger picture. How does the system deal with this? Organizationally, how do we deal with this? How can a person deal with this? Um, All of those levels have to be touched. And it's not just workplace. We need to look at the person as a whole right there. Um, you mentioned you know, past traumas or other things going on in your life can very much influence your work, and your work can influence that. So I think there needs to be a more holistic look
3: overall to a person. Mm-hmm. Andrew, do you have advice for the forensic science community and uh, how uh, we should well, approach this? Actually, <laughs> um,
1: at this point, uh, NIJ is working on a gap assessment, mm-hmm. um, which involves adapting the vicarious trauma organizational instrument to crime labs since that instrument was developed for law enforcement and emergency responders. We're in the process of launching a survey of laboratories and also medical examiners using that instrument and also another instrument to kind of gauge individual responses, see how they may be related. And so we're hoping that we'll then have some more advice for the forensic community about what the issues are and, and and what kinds of interventions might be helpful. So we're, we're in the middle of doing that, and as you mentioned, um, there's also a, a grant now effort to fund more
3: studies of this type. This has been a really great conversation. There's been a lot of resources that we've talked about here today. We're going to be linking to things like the Vicarious Trauma Toolkit uh, information that is out there uh, off of the podcast page and to some of the other resources that both the FTCOE and others have developed for the community so that uh, you all can kind of get to the next level of understanding on on this issue. But uh, let me please thank Amy Jean and Andrew Levin for being on Just Science Day. Thank you all very much for sharing with us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having
3: Thank you. And thank you out there in the audience for listening in and downloading Just Science. Please tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science and all the resources of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence around not only technology transition, but just improving the practice and professionalism of the forensic science community. Appreciate you tuning in today.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this special release episode of Just Science. Please visit the FTCOE website to view other related content, including vicarious trauma webinar series and reports. Keep your eyes and ears open for our next season, Improving the System, releasing early next year. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.